Hi guys, Russell here. Uh, this is a bit of an odd presentation in that I'm just looking at a lot of different ideas and trying to put them together so we can still have a, a story or a way of understanding the markets to allow us to analyze risks and what could happen going forward. So, you know, I'm just going to talk about various different concepts of what I believe and what I see. So, you know, the first thing I would say is I still believe we're in a bond bear market. I think the bull market is over. Uh, I know markets have rallied a bit, uh, bond markets have rallied a bit over the last month or so, but I think it's a rally to sell. That's my view. But what we, we have seen is, for example, the long end of the bond market in the States has definitely sold off from where it was a few years ago. Um, and I would say in general, market analysts, sort of strategists and other people, and myself included, would have thought that the sell-off in the long end of the market would be devastating for what uh, sort of termed growth stocks, tech stocks, sort of high valuation stocks. Um, and we can use some very long dated definitions from MSCI of value and growth. And what you found or what historically was the case is that value stocks tend to outperform growth with the exception of the dot-com bust. Uh, and then they and then value reasserted its uh, supremacy. And what we've seen since almost the GFC is that uh, growth stocks have continued to outperform. And, you know, like I said, last year we saw long end of the bond market sell off and growth underperformed and value outperformed, but that has reversed in 2023, even though uh, bond yields stayed relatively high. Um, so that's something new, you know, it's usual suspects have come back. Um, it's a bit odd though when you look at that and then you go look at something like an ARK ETF which for me, the ARK Innovation ETF would be, by definition, a growth investor. And I'm looking at that and thinking, well, you know, I'm not seeing the bounce out of that. Okay, there are some problems with ARK, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's not confirming this sort of uh, growth versus value story that uh, the MSCI numbers would suggest. Um, so I thought, let's, let's think about this a bit deeper and see if we can... Uh, if we can get, uh, you know, make a better story than what the market is really putting out there. So, you know, as you know, I like looking at Michael Hartnett's uh, flow show. Uh, you know, one of, the data's, I found one of the data points of graphs out of that was showing uh, that uh, US banks are trading at 80 year lows relative to the market. Uh, it's shown here. You can see, I think there's really two paradigms, there's post-World War II paradigm and then the post, you know, sort of 1980 paradigm of valuations of banks, which I find interesting. Uh, this is not valuations, it's right, relative price. Um, and it's continued to go lower and lower. Again, you know, in a rising interest rate environment, I'd probably think banks should be doing better, but they're doing worse. Okay, so something, something's going on. Now, here is where I think it gets interesting, and I think we get somewhere with the analysis. Uh, so why are banks so poor? So I think banks have to hold equity. Uh, certainly after the GFC, they're, they're required to hold sizable amounts of equity uh, to protect their balance sheets, to be able to eat any losses that come along. Uh, even that, even with that, of course, we've seen like uh, Silicon Valley Bank go bust this year. But what I'm trying to say is that banks are, have to hold equity and have to quite hold quite a lot of equity. And what is weird is what I'm, you know, what is weird is that 
we've seen a big change in the way the S&P works over my investment career. So what I'm looking at here is S&P 500 shares outstanding, where I take the market cap and divide it by the price. So get shares outstanding. Um, what's really happened over the last sort of 15 years is the S&P has become a capital return market, not a capital raising market. So basically, companies just return capital. You know, obviously, some will be raising, but the majority or a large chunk of the S&P is now just returning capital. And that's largely through share buybacks. Uh, a sort of private equity is also a sort of a, a capital returning machine as well in many ways. Um, so we now have a capital return market. Now, what's interesting about a capital return market, uh, and I'm going to use an extreme example here, is that you can, you can end up with, with big, large firms having negative equity, particularly if you uh, subtract uh, intangibles, be a negative equity. So, for example, McDonald's uh, has gone from having like 15 billion of equity in 2012 to having the 5 billion of negative equity today. All right. So it's if if McDonald's for whatever reason McDonald's Corp had to shut down uh, and sell its you know assets on the balance sheet to pay off its debt, you would still have a big hole left over. Now, of course, there are some issues with that. There's a lot of intangibles and the contracts between uh, franchisees and franchisors is worth something. You know, so you could say there's a lot of uh, intangible equity that you can't see. That's fair enough. But why have they done that recently? Why didn't they do that earlier? Is one question I would ask myself or ask. And what you can see with McDonald's, you know, is a very well-read company. They've been buying back shares almost ever since they listed. So it's not an, they've accelerated with a, a change in management in 2015, uh, and they sold a lot of their uh, own stores to franchisees. So it become more of a platform type company that doesn't really need to invest into stores. So I think that's accelerated that sort of move to negative equity. But what you can see is uh, if this is an overwhelming feature of the market, it explains why banks have been so poor because they need equity. Uh, they'll often even be raising equity. Whereas McDonald's and, you know, if you look at what's happening with balance sheets like of Apple, you know, negative equity or low equity is, is more norm. And, you know, as I've shown elsewhere, uh, you know, if they ignore, you know, share buybacks will tend to price uh, the marginal value of equity because they'll be the biggest buyers in the market. Um, and so if they ignore valuations of their corporate bonds in buying back shares, um, then the value of the stock can hold up well. And here I show that like McDonald's, you know, like I said, McDonald's been buying back shares for years. Um, and what I've tried to do is estimate the cost of McDonald's so I've just taken the 10-year bond yield, a government bond yield, and add 20% on. Um, and what you can see is really, you know, from 2010 through 2020, the earnings yield of McDonald's was way above its borrowing cost. So it made an awful lot of sense for them to buy back, buy back shares. It was a reasonable use of capital. That's no longer the case. And to be fair, uh, share buybacks have slowed at, at McDonald's in recent times. But that being said, you know, it's a company out of negative equity. Uh, I would have thought the higher yield market would have been negative for McDonald's. That hasn't really been the case. Uh, McDonald's shares have continued to trade well. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, maybe one of the reforms that were put in place, and I've talked a lot about this, is clearinghouse reform. There's a whole separate tab on my front of my uh, webpage. Go read there if I'm going to talk about some concepts to understand. 
all of it's there. I'm not going to go into all of it now. Um, but, you know, is it possible that removing, moving clearinghouses sent to the center of the financial system has reduced the need for corporates to hold equity? So what I'm going to show you here is if you look at uh, the S&P bank index and then a high-yield spread, so taking the KDB high-yield index and compared to a five-year government bond to just get a spread. So that's the blue line. And the bank index is the orange line. So what you can see when that spread is coming in, good for banks or banks do well. You know, When that spread is widening or going sideways, banks don't do so well. So you can see, so out of the... A savings loan crisis in the early 90s, the spread was wide, nearly 10% came all the way back into so two, three, huge bull market for US banks and then widened through the, to the GFC. Banks went nowhere uh, for like a decade and then it came back in again before the credit crisis. Banks did pretty well. Uh, GFC came along, banks were awful. Uh, spread stayed wide for a while and then the spread started to come in until 2015 Banks dipped a bit and the spread went back to zero. Banks did really well. COVID came, spread widened, banks did poorly. Uh, spread came back in after COVID, banks did well. And then the last couple of years, banks have been absolutely dog shit and the spread is at lows, which has really broken the pattern there. Uh, and that'd be the observation that you know you could make is that the uh, the reforms post-GFC that moved clearinghouses uh, to the center of the financial system have actually done what they're supposed to do. So here's a sort of stylized graphic I've used it many times before. Uh, and you look at the US stock market, uh, you know, has performed very well despite the bankruptcy of Silicon Valley Bank, for example, and a number of other banks. And so the regulators are probably thinking, job done, well done. Um, and you, you do have to remember that the clearinghouses do volumes that even the biggest banks like JP Morgan can't even compare. So this is, again, taken from my presentations. Compression volume really is sort of looking at a number of interest rate products that are being uh, run through the system, and compression even picks up ones that are disappearing. All you need to know is the the clearinghouses do a huge amount of interest rate product volumes, and so they really are at the center of the system. And clearinghouses are really government-mandated businesses and de facto will be stood behind with a bank uh, by the central banks and, in fact, has happened uh, jure, if you like. So, for example, you know, when trust came along and blew up the US-UK guilt market, the problems that I've always fall about with killing, uh, clearinghouses came to the fore. They kill liquidity because of the way they raise margins. Read about that elsewhere. Uh, and what happened, of course, is Bank of England came in. So even though Bank of England was raising interest rates uh, in 2022, they then restarted the QE program to provide liquidity. And so... What you've got now is previously when corporates issued corporate bonds into the corporate bond market, they knew they were also uh, reliant on the health of banks and the risk of banks. And so they were incorporated into a system uh, of, you know, U.S. depositors, U.S. banking system, U.S. financial system. And so they moved with whatever the, the system was doing. With the clearinghouse system, they are largely devoid of that. Liquidity can become an issue, but central banks have shown that they are willing to tweak the rules whenever there is any potential risk. I'll be honest with you, that makes a lot of sense after the GFC and the euro crisis. Voters did not want another credit crisis. And so they have achieved that. The problem they've got now 
is that large corporates that can uh, be investment grade can get uh, the sort of benefits of being, you know, uh, away, distant, you know, away from the financial system, becoming almost like separate to uh, the US market, you know, uh, have really benefited from this system. And so you've got rising income inequality, you've got falling government tax receipts as more and more or uh, 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 sort of taxable revenue is passed through tax remote corporates and multinationals. And so I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, this is a good reform you know, from, a, from a sort of uh, politician's point of view. But what I'm seeing is that voters, I think, now want more equality, more equality. They want rising wages, which is one of the same thing. And they probably want less corporate-friendly policies. I certainly don't like the... Uh, the, the pricing power that large corporates have where you get, you know, you get informed prices going up next month and there's very little you can do about it. Um, and so I'm seeing a change. And so, you know, what I'm thinking is that uh, I think smart corporates should be looking at the environment we're in today, rising yields and changing voters and perhaps thinking that negative equity and share buybacks is maybe not so smart, particularly at the valuations that they're doing it and maybe hoarding cash will be better. Certainly, if that's the case, it would make short selling much more, much easier. But that's just a view. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, to come back to answer the original question, is by making the corporate bond market more robust and bank remote, perhaps that has meant that the rise of negative equity has made a lot of sense and is not the sort of uh, negative sign that I thought it was. If, if political change does come, then I think it will be a problem But for the time being, it does make sense from that perspective. All right. Stay safe. We'll talk again soon. Ciao.